What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the expository story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Baldhead Bible Podcast is committed to keeping our show free to the public. However, as with everything, there are expenses involved, so if you would like to contribute, head on over to patreon.com. That's patreon.com forward slash baldhead Bible. And there you can become a supporting member for as low as $1 a month. While there, please check out some of the bonus material available only to our BHBP supporters. And some of that material includes Bible study guides to help you use the podcast to minister to your children, to minister in a Sunday school class, and to have some quality family devotions. Daniel closed the book. He ran his fingers along the leathery spine of the book. Maybe flipped open some of the pages again and reread some of the words that were so meaningful from God to him. He loved this book. He loved the Torah. And he particularly liked the prophets and and when he was reading the book of Jeremiah, he realized Daniel did in his old age that it was time. It was time to show this pagan king what Yahweh had prophesied some 150 years earlier. He had just read it in the book of Isaiah. Daniel was an old man by this time, and his knees creaked as he got up from the table and chair. And he took his copies of the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and he polished them to a shine. He made the leather just look beautiful on the outside. And he loved to smell the books. You know, all great people who love books love to smell a good book. And Daniel was no different. He had to make them look good for the king. He needed to impress King Cyrus. See, King Cyrus was a king who had accomplished a lot in his time. Cyrus had started out as a king of a minor country. In fact, a king of a nomadic people, but slowly he had built an empire strong enough to take on the Babylonians. And finally... He had invaded the city of Babylon by diverting the river that ran under the city walls and walked right in and killed the Babylonian king. And he, Cyrus, became the new ruler of this Medo-Persian Babylonian kingdom. He was the king of Babylon, which meant to the whole world that Cyrus was its ruler. When you became the king of Babylon, you became the ruler of the whole world. That's what that title meant. 
And now Cyrus was the king of Babylon. And this occurred around 539 B.C. And you know who was there to see it all? Daniel. See, Daniel had been taken captive when he was in his teens. And he had been captured in Jerusalem and dragged all the way to Babylon to serve the king of Babylon, who at that time was King Nebuchadnezzar. Then, eventually, Daniel became so valuable to the king that he worked his way up to become pretty much the highest mucky-muck official in the whole Babylonian kingdom. But while Daniel was achieving success in Babylon, sadly, Daniel also had to hear about the slow demise of his beloved homeland, his beloved Judah. And he had probably over his lifetime had seen the Jewish exiles streaming into the city and the surrounding Babylonian villages. I think he probably talked to Ezekiel the prophet and other exilic prophets. You know, these are prophets who prophesied outside of Israel. When Israel had been exiled from the land, that's a big fancy word for kicked out, well, some prophets went along with them, and the most famous was Ezekiel prophesying to the Jews who are outside of the promised land. They're in exile. And I think since Ezekiel was in Babylon, since Ezekiel was in that region, I wonder if Daniel and Ezekiel would have known each other. And Daniel probably talked to the Jewish people who were streaming in, who had been captured and taken away from their promised land, forced into slavery. And I wonder if Daniel had talked to these people to try to encourage them, to try to help them. And in particular, I bet Daniel encouraged them to keep worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. Because that was the one thing that kept Daniel in power, I think. That was the one thing that God could use over and over again, and thus Daniel kept moving up the Babylonian ranks because of that one thing. Daniel kept his eyes laser-focused on following Yahweh. I mean, for Daniel, that meant when he was a teen, when he first arrived, that meant he had to stand up to oppression. He had to stand up to the Babylonian system and not eat the king's meat because it violated his walk with Yahweh. Later on, him and his friends, you've probably heard of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow down to a pagan idol because of their laser focus on following Yahweh. Daniel himself got thrown into a lion's den over his staunch stand on faith, right? He would not quit praying to Yahweh and Yahweh alone three times a day. And so with a love and a focus on Yahweh, and I think combine that with a love for his people, I believe that would have caused Daniel to reach out to the Jewish community surrounding him the best way he could. And I think one of the best ways that Daniel realized he could serve the Jewish community in exile was by serving in the Babylonian government and giving help and aid to the Jewish people where and when he could. And now, Daniel's thinking at the age of 100 plus. Now, now he had one of his best opportunities to help his people. Now he had a chance 
to help his people return to the land of promise, to return home. See, Jeremiah makes a prophecy, and it's found in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. And in that prophecy, it says that the people of Israel will be exiled from the land for 70 years. And guess what? Daniel begins to realize that 70-year time frame is coming to an end. Those 70 years are about to wrap up, and so far nothing has happened to the Jewish people. They're, they're still in the Iran-Iraq region. They still have not returned to their homeland. And I wonder if Daniel was thinking if they don't return soon, the 70 years are about to run out. Now, I don't know if Daniel had a vision or, or just if it was a feeling in his stomach and spirit that he had to act now. Either way, I believe Daniel acted. And that's why I believe what happened next happened, because Daniel acted. Now, ultimately, I have no proof of it, but other scholars agree with me and other commentators agree with me that they wonder if Daniel had an influence on King Cyrus. Well, I think he did. I think Daniel got up from that table grabbed the book of Jeremiah and the book of Isaiah and he walked down the street from his office on Pennsylvania Avenue to the King's Palace at 10 Downing Street and then he bowed before the king. Now Cyrus, you know, he'd been reigning for about a year at this point as king of Babylon and, and I can imagine Daniel walks into the throne room and Daniel is asked to rise up, stand up, and speak to King Cyrus. And there, I believe, Daniel shows King Cyrus the verse in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, where Jeremiah says, For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. There it is. The prophet Jeremiah saying that the people will be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And then, playing to the pride of King Cyrus, but also using the truth of Scripture, Daniel plays his clincher. He shows Cyrus the verses from the Old Testament that Daniel knew would move the heart of the king. He shows him Isaiah 44, verse 28, and Isaiah 45, verse 1. And they say this, Who says to Cyrus, it even names him, Who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure, and says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt, and of the temple its foundation will be laid. The Lord says this to Cyrus. Again, he mentions him. His anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and disarm kings, to open doors before him, and even city gates will not be shut. I bet Daniel, who's probably 100 plus years old at this point, I, I, I bet he uses his position to, to influence this arrogant king. And like I said, we have no historical record or proof that Daniel did this, but what else would move a pagan king to issue a decree that benefited one specific religious group called the Jews? 
See, Yahweh is in control of everything. So it could have been Yahweh just moving Cyrus's heart. But I wonder if instead God chose to use his faithful servant Daniel one last time. See, Daniel was too old, I think, to make the journey back to Jerusalem at this point. But Daniel could still do his part. Josephus, he's this famous Jewish historian. Hey, I'd like to say he agrees with me. He thinks it was probably Daniel who moved the heart of King Cyrus by showing him those verses. Now remember, the verses in Isaiah mention Cyrus specifically. And guess what? That prophecy by Isaiah was made 150 years earlier. And I think Daniel showing King Cyrus these verses, mentioning to him the prophecy of 70 years, and Cyrus seeing his name mentioned in a prophecy made 150 years before his time. I think that moved the heart and mind of this king. Well, whether that's true or not, we're not certain. But we do know this is fact that in 538 B.C., Cyrus makes this decree. And this decree cannot be changed. A decree is basically a statement by the king that, hey, this has to be done, you know? It's sort of like an executive order, we might call it today. But this was a decree from the king of Babylon that cannot be changed. And the decree says this, that all the Jewish people living in any part of his kingdom, which was the biggest on earth at the time, any Jew who would like to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple, Cyrus says, I give the decree that if you want to do that, you can. That's essentially what his decree says. It says it specifically in Ezra 1 verse 3, any of his people among you, may his God be with him and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus made that decree. And so this is it. This is when the Jews can finally return to the homeland. After 70 years of exile, they could now return. And most importantly, they were given safe passage to do so by King Cyrus himself. Now, I will admit Cyrus probably had some selfish reasons. He probably knew it would look good for him in the propaganda world. Hey, letting people go return to their homeland. He also probably wanted to set up a buffer zone of pro-Babylonian states in that region. Later on, archaeologists discover this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder. And on it, it had a lot of decrees and writing from Cyrus, statements about Cyrus and statements from Cyrus himself. Well, on this Cyrus Cylinder, Cyrus is quoted as saying he wants these people in other countries to get their local deities, their local gods, to pray for him and to pray to his God. See, I don't think Cyrus was a believer totally in Yahweh. I think he believed in Yahweh, but I think he also believed in Molech. I think he also believed in his particular God, you know, and Yahweh was just one of them. 
And he wanted these people in other countries to get their gods to pray for him and to his gods. Well, sadly, Cyrus was mistaken here, right? And, you know, he probably didn't listen to Daniel. And I can imagine Daniel pleading and stressing to King Cyrus that, that, that you know, he would want him to worship the one true God to give up all these other gods. But I don't think Cyrus listened. But either way, for whatever reason, for whatever motive, God moved in the heart of King Cyrus to issue a command that the Jewish people could return to the homeland. And yes, finally, they can return. And so begins the book of Ezra. Now, not all of the Jewish people in exile in Babylon wanted to return. Some of them had prospered in Babylon and had built some fantastic businesses and they had some great jobs by now and houses and cars and a new Xbox. And if they returned, they'd have to leave all that behind. But there were some other Jewish people who had a completely different mindset. There are some Jewish men and women, and I think children, who were dying to return to the promised land. And they had kept up their worship of Yahweh and had sought the face of Yahweh day after day. They met with other believers and had read the passages from Jeremiah where they knew that one day they, or at least their children, would be able to return, and they wanted to go. So when the decree came from King Cyrus, man, these guys were ready, and they packed up right away. These guys had suitcases, I can imagine, already packed and ready to go. Ezra records in this first wave of returning Jews, there were just under 50,000 people who chose to return. But this number was probably just recording the men and did not count the wives, daughters, sons, children. So many people believe the actual number that returned was more probably in the 150,000 range of people. So eventually there'd be three waves of people returning to the promised land. This first wave, and then they had a second wave of people returning to the promised land led by Ezra, and then they had a third and final wave of people led by a guy named Nehemiah. Well, this first wave of people was led by a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, I think that's a cool name. If I ever had a kid again, I might name him that. Now, Zerubbabel was called the Fresh Prince of Judah. Well, I added the fresh part. But he was considered a prince of Judah. And what that meant was that he was descended from Jewish royalty. He could trace his lineage or his family tree all the way back to King Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was his grandfather. And he'd been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiachin was taken from Israel to Babylon, and there Jehoiachin was thrown into prison. But later, Nebuchadnezzar releases Jehoiachin and allows him to live and to prosper. Well, along the way, Jehoiachin has a son, and that son was Zerubbabel's dad. Now, Zerubbabel means begotten in Babylon, which of course signifies that Zerubbabel was born in Babylon outside of Jerusalem and Israel. 
Zerubbabel had never known what it was like to live in the promised land. Prince Zerubbabel had probably heard all the cool stories of life in Jerusalem, of the prophet Jeremiah and his buddy Baruch, of, of King David and Solomon, and, and hopefully, hopefully along the way, Zerubbabel had also come to know Yahweh, the one true God. King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and it was Yahweh that Zerubbabel worshipped. Zerubbabel, prince of Judah, did not worship any other gods. And so, as the only prince available to lead the Jewish people back home, and maybe the only prince wanting to go back home, Zerubbabel acts on the decree and he starts packing. He also brought, probably, not just clothes, he probably brought some tools and equipment. And some who joined him, according to Ezra, they brought some cool stuff. They brought camels and donkeys. And, and back then, to have that sort of stuff, man, you had to be rich. You had to have some money. And, and Ezra lists some other cool, expensive stuff that Zerubbabel and others going with him brought. And it's interesting. By being able to list, hey, we're bringing camels, we're bringing donkeys. For many of the Jewish people, it was clear that they had come to Babylon poor and penniless, but now they are leaving pretty well off. God had blessed them while they were in Babylon. They didn't just sit around in chains. No, it seems like many of them integrated into Babylonian society and had built businesses and had made friends and made connections and created wealth and blessed the city they were in. And God blessed them and they were wealthy enough to take back camels and donkeys and expensive stuff. Today would have been like a, a really expensive car or something like that. I mean, these people weren't just poor going back. Hey, we're going back to Jerusalem because we have no money here. Maybe some of them were that way. But a lot of these were wealthy, prosperous people who wanted to return home. And so Ezra begins to list all the family groups that began to go back home. And he lists some of the family groups in this first wave. There's the Epsteins and the Goldmans and the Levi's and the Dershowitzes and the... Well, that's what their names should have been, I think. They would have been a lot easier to pronounce if that's what their names were. But instead, oh, here are some from the list. Parosh's descendants, Shephatiah's descendants, Era's descendants, Pahath Moab's descendants, Jeshua and Joab's, I can say those, Elam's descendants, Zatu, Zaki's, Bani's. And it just lists these descendants, these family groups that are wanting to go back home. As a family, we're going back to the promised land. And then, King Cyrus, to help these people, led by Zerubbabel, to make that 900-mile, four-month journey back to Judah, Cyrus gives them artifacts. He essentially gives them artifacts that the Babylonians had taken when they had raided into Israel and they put them in their temple. Well, Cyrus, he wants to give them back to them so that the Jewish people can take those artifacts and put them back in the temple that they're going to build in Jerusalem. He gave them 30 gold basins, 1,000 silver basins, 29 silver knives, 1,030 gold bowls, 
410 various silver bowls, and a thousand other articles. In the end, Cyrus gave them 5,400 items from his temple's treasury. He wants them to take it from his temple and to put it in the temple that they're going to build to the one true God. And also along the way, it talks about how neighbors gave these people money. In all the regions, wherever Cyrus reigned, he, he decreed that the other that, that neighbors and friends and, and even officials should give the Jewish people money and goods to help them come back and to make the long journey and to help them to be prosperous in the land they're going back to. This is exciting stuff. They're going. The Jewish people are going back home. The Jewish people are about to return to the promised land. 900 miles, four months later, it's going to be a bit of a hard slog, but they've got encouragement. They've got wealth. God's prospered them. They're going to go back and build the temple. This is exciting stuff. But little did they know there was something waiting for them back home. See, the land had not remained empty while they were gone for the past 70 years. No, not at all. Something else was there. Something was there that was not happy that they were returning. And you know what that something was? Well, you got to come back next week to find out. I think the story of Ezra is exciting. First thing that comes to my mind is God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. 70 years later, God keeps his promises. The people did return. And I just think it's interesting too that the people returned prosperous, many of them. And many of them left behind prosperous businesses and lives in Babylon. And God had taken care of them. And I think we can be encouraged that these people just wanted to obey. And they knew that God was going to take care of them, whether it was in Babylon, whether it was back in Judah. God was going to watch over them. And man, I hope you come back next week to find out what they're about to face when they do get to Judah in the exciting ways that God will protect and take care of his people. Thank you for listening to Baldhead Bible Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page or email us at baldheadbible at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash baldheadbible. Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. New episodes added every week.